All right. So we are in week five, the final week of a sermon series that we have entitled How the Mighty Fall. How the Mighty Fall. Now, this uh, title of a series is based upon a book by a guy named Jim Collins. Jim Collins wrote Good to Great, Built to Last. These are two sort of business industry standard type books. And, uh, and then he wrote this book several years ago. Um, and the idea behind this book, How the Mighty Fall, was to take a look at once great companies and to see how it is that they fell into their demise, right? They either fell into irrelevance or bankruptcy. And he's talking about, you know, these really big companies that you've heard of. And as I read through the book, I looked at the different stages of decline, and there were really five different stages of decline. And as I read each of them, I sort of found myself thinking, you know, these are not just business uh, problems or stages of decline in businesses, but they're actually uh, human problems. And they're the very things that lead us to, uh, to fall as well. And so the first week we looked at the first um, stage of decline, which is called hubris or pride, born of success. And so one of the first phases of uh, a big company declining is when they become arrogant, right? And they quit, uh, quit working quite so hard or they forget what got them there to begin with. So hubris, born of success. The second phase of decline was an undisciplined pursuit of more. In other words, debauchery, greed, just kind of grasping for more and more and more was the second phase of decline. The third phase of decline was denial of risk and peril. In other words, um, they just sort of foolishly made decisions that were very, very unwise that led them into decline. Uh, The fourth phase of decline was grasping for salvation. In other words, when they began to realize that they were falling, they began grasping for whatever they could grab and hold onto around them, but that actually just made matters worse. And then today, we're going to be looking at the fifth stage of decline, which is called capitulation to irrelevance or death. In other words, eventually they get to a point where they lose hope, they're worn out, and they just give up. So today, we're going to be looking at that. I'm going to pray, and uh, then after I pray, I'm going to turn it back over to David Elmer, who's been um, leading our worship musically today, and he's going to play you a pretty awesome song from the 1980s that's going to set this up. So before we do that, let me go ahead and let's pray. Father, thanks for this day, and I thank you for each of the people that are in here this morning. I just pray, Father, that we wouldn't be able to leave this place this morning without having encountered you, the living God. And Father, I pray that as we encounter you, um, that you would uh, reveal to us our sinfulness, our brokenness, um, our attempts at self-justification, uh, our attempts at self-salvation. I pray, Father, that through your Spirit, you would reveal those um, sinful parts of us and that we would repent um, and that we would turn away from trusting in those uh, different things we're trusting in and instead we would trust in you as our Father and your Son Jesus as our Savior. I pray all these things um, in Jesus' name, amen.
So that song originally is by Edie Burkell and the New Bohemians, circa 1988, when I was 16 or 17 and either a sophomore or junior in high school. Uh, she's actually married to Paul Simon of Simon and Garfunkel, if you guys are familiar with Simon and Garfunkel. By the way, I realize that everything I'm talking about was occurred long before most of your births. Anyway, <clears throat> but the 80s are kind of in right now. And, uh, and what's interesting is that song, again, toward the end of the 80s, um, you know, the 80s, were marked by, music was marked by this sort of vapid weightlessness in music, you know, hair bands and all this kind of silly pop stuff. And then as it moved into the early 90s, it became sort of, you know, heavy and, and meaningful, sort of ended up in sort of the grunge movement of, of actually pretty thoughtful music. And so that, that song was a little bit of a transition between those two eras. And what's interesting is this, that song captured an idea that we're all pretty familiar with. Maybe, maybe it's not an idea we're familiar with. Maybe it captured a feeling that we're all familiar with. And the feeling is this desire to give up, right? To just sort of walk away, to quit. And so it's interesting because we think about it and we think, well, yeah, people in my life have given up. They've quit on things that are really important. You know, my parents quit. They gave up on one another, Right? And in doing so, they kind of gave up on me, right? And all the, the hurt and the cost that came from that. And so some of us are realize we're sort of aware of, of quitting and giving up in that context. Some of us are aware of quitting on a college class or maybe quitting on college altogether because it's just too hard. You know, athletes are familiar with uh, quitting on a play, right? Or giving up in the middle of a race or throwing in the towel, 
we all sort of understand intuitively this desire, this feeling to just give up because it hurts too much, it's too painful, we're done. We want to be through with it, right? And so what's interesting is in 1 Kings 19, we actually see a story that captures this very idea, this very tension. And the central figure, other than God in the story, is a prophet whose name is Elijah, and he's been living in Israel. And what's interesting is during the time that Elijah has been living in Israel, um, it is the norm that people are worshiping the Baals and Asherah. And not only that, but Ahab, the king, and Jezebel, his wife, have built uh, temples and all these different sacrificial altars to these false gods. And so that's the world that Elijah is living in, and he's trying to be faithful to God. And in the midst of trying to be faithful to God and serving as a prophet, God actually uses him for this amazing sort of duel that takes place on Mount Carmel. And what happens is Elijah goes to the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah, 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah. They show up on Mount Carmel, and he basically challenges them to this duel. And in this duel, what happens is, is the prophets of Baal and Asherah, nothing happens. Their gods do not show up. They're silent. And Elijah even taunts them a little bit and says, maybe your God's taking a nap, right? Maybe he's using the bathroom and he's not available right now. Like it's in the story, 1 Kings 18. Some good cut downs. Anyway, what's interesting though is when Elijah calls on God, God shows up in this amazing way and absolutely wins this duel on Mount Carmel. And so here's where the story takes on a little bit of a twist. Ahab, the king, again, who's been uh, really putting forth this worship of Baal and Asherah, he runs back home where Jezebel is waiting for him, and he tells Jezebel what happened. And Jezebel, the queen, instead of repenting, instead of saying, hey, maybe God is the true God, let's trust in him, she says, you know what, we're going to have Elijah killed. And she sends a messenger to Elijah to tell Elijah, I'm coming to get you. And if I don't have you killed by this day tomorrow, then I'll let my gods deal with me ever so severely. And what's interesting is after this amazing victory on Mount Carmel, ironically, Elijah gives up. He quits. He runs away, not just from the fight, but from ministry all together. He's done. So that's the story we're going to read this morning. So It'll be up on the screen. You can follow along with me, if you will, beginning in 1 Kings 19, verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. And so in response to Elijah defeating the prophets of Baal and Asherah, Jezebel, queen of Israel, sends the above message to Elijah saying, may the gods deal with me if I don't kill you by this time tomorrow. She is furious, right? She is vindictive. She is angry. Even though her gods just got thrashed really publicly, she doubles down on her trust in them and threatens to hunt Elijah down and kill him within the next 24 hours. And so the logical narrative arc, I would think, for this story uh, would be for Elijah to say, did you not hear what just happened? You know, right? I mean, you could, you could imagine Elijah with this look of confidence on his face, like, what are you talking about? Do you not know what just happened? Like, your gods just got crushed. The one true God showed up and destroyed them. I'm not afraid of you. Like, that would be the logical narrative arc of the story, but that's not at all how 
Elijah responds. Look at verse 3. It says this, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. So in response to Jezebel's threat, Elijah is terrified and he runs for his life. He leaves Israel way up in the north and he flees to Judah way down in the south. He is getting as far away as possible from Jezebel. And when he reaches the city of Beersheba, it's 120 miles away from Jezebel to the south, he leaves his servant behind and goes into the wilderness. He's exhausted. He's hopeless. He's depressed. He comes to this broom bush. He sits under it, and he just tells God, I'm out. I'm done. In fact, he's so depressed that he's actually suicidal. He's self-loathing. He says, I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he just lies down, and he falls asleep in exhaustion. Verse, end of verse 5. All at once... An angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. So, after letting Elijah sleep a bit more, three times, it's recorded that God allows Elijah to sleep in this narrative. The angel of the Lord, who, by the way, most commentators agree that when we talk, when the Bible talks about the angel of the Lord or the messenger of the Lord, it's usually a theophany, or in other words, and it's, appear, it's an appearance of God to human beings before the incarnation of Christ. So it's God appearing to man. So the angel of the Lord comes back and gently touches Elijah and wakes him up and serves him food for a second time. Interestingly, God doesn't try to take Elijah back to Judah to face Jezebel. Instead, God has another journey for Elijah, but in the opposite direction, to Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai, where Moses stood in the presence of God long before him. And this journey now is 250 miles away. It takes him 40 days. And so if you do the math, it's about six and a half miles a day. And this, the reason it's such a little amount of mileage is because the terrain is super rugged. And he finally reaches Mount Horeb. And when he gets there, he crawls into a cave and he falls asleep. You can just, again, imagine that he's probably just exhausted. And then it says, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 10, he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to the death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. So, Two times the angel of the Lord has appeared to Elijah, two times preparing food for him and letting him rest. 
And this time, instead of the angel of the Lord, this time it's the word of the Lord that comes to Elijah and speaks. God asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah gives a semblance of an answer, right? He justifies himself. I've been very zealous for you. The implication, of course, is that I've been doing this thing by myself, right? I'm alone. Nobody's with me in this. I, at least, have been zealous for you, and that's true. He does a little bit of blaming and some veiled accusing. He says, the Israelites, all of them, have rejected you. They've killed your prophets, and they're coming after me, so I'm here because I don't want to die at the hands of my enemy, which is also kind of true. And you can't read it. You don't know because it's a narrative, but there may be a little bit of petulance in his reply. It's hard to tell. But his response is definitely functioning as a dashboard for what he really thinks, for what he really feels, and for what he really believes, right? I mean, essentially what's going on down deep inside his heart somewhere is the message that I'm alone, right? I'm alone, right? I've been very zealous for you, but nobody else has. I'm alone. And I have to take care of myself. Clearly, I can't trust you to take care of me. Clearly, you're not here right now. Now, Clearly, you're not following, you know, or sort of carrying your, your weight or, you know, carrying your end of the bargains. So clearly, I can't trust you. What are you doing, God? All of this stuff is probably going on down deep inside Elijah. It's probably why he's so hopeless and despairing. And how does God respond to his petulant answer? God says, go out. And stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Does that phrase sound familiar a little bit? Remember, Elijah's on Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, where God appeared to Moses, gave him the Ten Commandments. God appeared to him, but he, God, if you remember, protected Moses by placing him in the cleft of the rock. And here is Elijah standing in a cave on the same mountain in the cleft of a rock. And then it says this, Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave." right? What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah gives this terrible answer, right? And God says, go out and stand, and I'm going to pass by. I'm going to show you my glory. But if you remember when God had told Elijah to go out and stand on the, you know, on, out on the mountain because he was about to pass by, but if you read this past little passage, we see that Elijah didn't obey. He's actually still in the cave, right? He did not go out. He either couldn't go or he wouldn't go, And while he's in the cave, that's when God sends this fierce wind that tears apart the rocks, and then the earthquake, and then finally this great fire. But Elijah doesn't experience any of them because he's hidden in the cleft of the rock. The wind and the fire and the earthquake, those are all destructive displays of God's power and his judgment, but God wasn't in any of them. It's not until God speaks in a word a still small voice, that Elijah gets up, pulls his cloak over his face, and steps 
a little bit further out, just into the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? So a few moments ago, God asked Elijah this very same question, and Elijah gave a response that was sort of true, but it was corrupted by blame and justification and accusation. But then God demonstrated his power in this powerful wind, in this earthquake, in this fire. Surely this time, when God asks Elijah what he's doing here, he would respond differently, right? Let's see, look at verse 14. He replied, that is Elijah, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. What? His answer is identical, verbatim, to the way he answered before. You read this, and you're like, surely this has been recorded wrong, right? It's like, I don't know if you guys ever saw The Princess Bride. Totally recommended. It's great. But you remember the scene where Wesley, you know, the grandfather's reading to the grandson, and the hero, Wesley, dies, and the little boy interrupts, and he goes, hold on, hold on. He can't die. What about Princess Buttercup, right? Like, this is not the way the story goes. And that's what this feels like here. Like, that's not how Elijah's supposed to answer. He's supposed to respond by repenting and charging back into the battle and going back and fighting against Jezebel. But he's just sort of barely moved at all. Like, he just sort of dragged himself out into the mouth of the cave. And then after all these displays of glory, he just sort of says the same thing. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, go back the way you came. And go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. By the way, that's a pagan king. Verse 16, also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mahola, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. It's really a pretty great story. And there could be lots of great takeaways from this story that we could focus on. One of the takeaways we could focus on is the lies that we believe about God and how they lead us to despair, right? That would totally fit with the story. What are the lies that you're believing about God? And how are those lies that you're believing, how are they leading you to despair and hopelessness, right? That would be a takeaway. Another takeaway could be the vows that we make about how we'll make life work for us apart from God's strength or his grace or apart from lying on him. We'll just sort of take matters into our own hands. We make vows like that all the time. That could be another takeaway. Or another takeaway could be the fact that God has a plan, Romans eight twenty eight, not only for Elijah and for Israel, but for us as well. We could rightfully focus on each and any of those, but instead, I want you to focus on one takeaway this morning, one, one truth. And the one truth I want you to take away from this story is this. It's that God is kind to us in our despair, right? It's just a picture of this amazing patience. It's a picture of God's gentleness. It's a picture of God's compassion, It's a picture of God's mercy. It's a picture of God's grace, particularly to this man, Elijah, right, who doesn't deserve any of that at all. 
We see God's patience and gentleness throughout this story. God lets Elijah run away. At any point, God could have stopped him, grabbed him by the arm, and said, what are you doing? But instead, God just lets him go. And sometimes we do this in parenting, and when we do it, it can actually be an act of kindness and of love. God lets Elijah give a really sorry, lame answer to his why are you here question. And he doesn't correct him, and he doesn't point out that he's wrong. Again, sometimes we do this in parenting. Sometimes a counselor will do this in counseling, and it's actually caring and kind just to let the person talk. Just get it out. What are you really thinking? What are you really feeling? And God lets Elijah do that. When God tells Elijah to go out and out of the cave, Elijah doesn't even obey. And God doesn't actually make him. God gives Elijah a glimpse into his plan to redeem Israel, even though he doesn't really have to. And even after Elijah does leave Mount Sinai, after this whole narrative is done and he goes back, if you read the following chapters, you'll see that he, that he does it grudgingly. And of all the assignments that God gives him, he only does one of them, right? He kind of halfway anoints Elisha. That's the one thing that he kind of does. He doesn't even do the other ones. At any point, God could have, and could have rightfully punished or condemned Elijah, but he doesn't. In fact, at the end of Elijah's life, God actually honors this servant who's really given so much of his life to God. And God honors him by sending a chariot of fire to take him to heaven. Just think about that for a minute. Like the whole end of Elijah's life is like, toward the end of it, he's just barely crawling across the finish line. Just barely. He's just barely hanging on. Right, all the way through this story, we see God's patience and kindness and gentleness and compassion and mercy and grace to Elijah. My favorite display of God's kindness, however, is actually just found in verses 5 and 6. It says this, all at once an angel, that is, again, this angel of the Lord God, so all at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around, that is Elijah, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. How would God respond to Elijah's despair? How would God respond to Elijah's doubts? How would God respond to Elijah's hopelessness? How would he respond to his unbelief? Maybe, maybe God would scold him right? Get on to him. Maybe God would shame him. Maybe God would say, oh, you're done with me. I'm done with you. Maybe God would give Elijah some words of encouragement or some words of wisdom, maybe some theological truth, but he doesn't do any of those things. God just lets Elijah take a nap. He lets him rest. And while Elijah's sleeping, God makes a fire and he cooks some bread and he fills a jar up with water. And we're not told where God gets this flour, this water, the bowl, the spoon, and a flat rock to cook on. 
but I'd like to think that he shows up while Elijah is sleeping and that God looks down at Elijah and smiles and thinks of David's poem in Psalm 103. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Then, maybe, God walks to a nearby stream, and he brings back some water in a jar, and he pulls out some eggs, and he cracks them in a bowl, and he mixes them with flour and a little bit of milk, and he begins to bake fresh bread over the coals from the fire that God has made with his own hands. And then he gently touches Elijah, waking him, and he serves him a meal to strengthen him for a journey that is too much for him. It's an amazing picture of God's compassion to someone in their despair and their disobedience and their disrespect, and God shows mercy and he shows grace by making this meal. As you look around the room this morning, you'll see that there's a meal in this room. There are tables with bread and with wine on my right, bread and grape juice on my left. And this bread and this wine represent another meal. This bread and this wine is what we call the Lord's Supper, or the, some people have called it the Eucharist. But fundamentally what this is, this meal of bread and wine, is it is a reminder of the grace that we've been shown in Jesus' perfect life and his death and resurrection. And this meal today of bread and wine is actually an invitation to sit at the family table of God and the access to be able to sit at that family table and to eat this bread and to drink this wine is simply faith, trust in Christ alone as your Savior. It it is a repentance of saying, I'm not trusting in myself, I'm not trusting in my goodness, I'm not trusting in my absence of badness, but instead, Father, I'm trusting in your Son who lived a perfect life and died this death for me. And what God offers you in this meal is grace. It is forgiveness. It is a declaration that it's not about your record or Elijah's record, but it's about Jesus' record on your behalf. And that through this meal, that God declares that he loves you. This, is a, this meal declares compassion. This meal declares mercy, that you're not given what you deserve, right? But rather, you're given what you don't deserve, which is a declaration of clean, beautiful, not guilty, and righteous because of your faith in Jesus alone. One last thing. Again, this meal represents sitting at the family table of God. And so by definition, what that means is if you haven't come to the point yet of trusting in Jesus as your Savior, then you're not yet at the family table. And so I would ask that if you're still in the process of wondering what that all even means, that you sit back and you watch the family of God as we eat this meal that God has prepared for us. I'm going to take a moment now. I'm going to read what we call the words of institution And then I'm going to simply ask that you sit there for a moment and that you receive the forgiveness that God offers you as you repent of your self-salvation and as you trust in him. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, 
the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we prepare now to come and to receive from you this bread and wine, this offer of forgiveness, Father, that I pray um, that your voice declaring not guilty, that your voice declaring innocent, that your voice declaring adoption, that your voice declaring love and compassion, Father, that your voice would be louder than the voice of the evil one who comes to accuse us and to tell us that it just can't be true. So, Father, I pray that in this meal today that you would shout down these other voices within us that tell us that we've been too sinful, that we've done it too many times, that we knew that it was wrong and we did it anyway. Therefore, we can't be forgiven. Father, let this meal be the answer to those doubts. Father, I pray that with a resounding yes, that you would remind us that we are forgiven. Again, not because of our righteousness, but because of the righteousness of your son, Jesus. We pray all these things now in his name. Amen.